What is going on? Happy Tuesday. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. It's the Pete Callender Show. I'm Pete. Last name spelled with a K. And uh, you can email Pete at thepetecallendershow.com. You can also call 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. And remember, get the podcast at WBT.com. You just click on the follow button and boom, there you go. The podcast comes directly to your smartphone or tablet three times a day. You get three different uh, episodes, basically, stripped of the uh, the commercials here. And so it's basically hour one gets posted as a podcast. And then follow me here. Hour two. That's right. Posted as a podcast. And then exactly hour three. There you go. Um, four months ago, maybe uh, you don't recall. Uh, I'm old enough to remember, though, when President Joe Biden went to Morehouse College in Atlanta and he was down there to push the Senate bills that would essentially nationalize our election administration. It would also have banned states from setting up their own voter integrity, election integrity measures as well. Voter ID, for example, would be banned. Right? They, the, the Democrats, and they still intend to do this, by the way. The Democrats, if they get uh, com- you know, enough control over the bodies uh, at the federal level, they will attempt to implement these types of uh, national laws, and uh, which flies in the face, by the way, just flies in the face of federalism. It, it, they're unconstitutional. Uh, they would you know, be subjected to litigation. But here's the key on all of the election integrity measures that Democrats oppose while claiming to want to protect the democracy, which is always odd to me. If you are trying to protect the democracy, then wouldn't you want to protect elections? Right? Doesn't that seem to make sense? Anyway, uh, this has been a centerpiece of Biden's argument that... Georgia and the law that they passed in 2021 that was Jim Crow 2.0 that was so bad we had to cancel the the Major League Baseball All-Star game remember they had to move it out of the state because oh they're all racist because of the law that they had passed which actually was an election integrity law it was not the things the democrats said it was and that should be very very clear today Today, they're voting in their primary in Georgia. I'm not going to go over the races. It's I'll, I'll see the returns when they come in. But uh, I try to stay in my lane on this stuff. I, I focus on North Carolina, Charlotte, and national stuff. So I'm not in the weeds on the Georgia election. But I, I do know what was said, because I am old enough to remember, what was said about the laws that were passed, not just in Georgia, but in other states, by Republican legislatures after the 2020 election. And why did Republican-led legislatures do that? Why did they start adopting various laws? Well, a couple reasons. Yes, number one, you had Donald Trump out there talking about, you know, the election was rigged and it was stolen and all of that. And so there were efforts, obviously, to respond to some of those criticisms. But for the most part, the rules were codified by GOP-led legislatures because of the way that Democrats and election officials had upended election rules during the pandemic. And they had made these end runs around law. North Carolina is a perfect example of it. 
I've gone over this in great detail over the last two years. The, the collusive settlement that was entered into by the North Carolina Attorney General, which, by the way, uh, Josh Stein, we wish him uh, all the best and a full recovery. He apparently suffered uh, a mini stroke last night while he was out walking his dog with his wife. And uh, his wife recognized the symptoms uh, of, a, of a stroke and, you know, demanded, made him go to a hospital, which he, being a dude, sorry, can I say that? I think so. Yeah. So, but being, it's one of the things I don't understand why. And I don't know, by the way, if, if this is also true for trans men, if people who identify as men, that they stop going to doctors too. But that's kind of the jam uh, being a dude. It's like, you're, you're, you're not going to doctors often. And you know, something happens like, ah, no, that's fine. I know the fingers just kind of barely hanging on to the bone there after that sawzall accident. But uh, no, I'd be fine. Just, I got some, uh, some gorilla glue. I'll just, It'll be fine, right? Who who among us hasn't? Okay. But Josh Stein and the Board of Elections entered into an agreement with the plaintiffs, people who had sued these organizations of the left that had sued over our election laws. And the General Assembly was party to the lawsuit, but the agreement, the settlements, were entered into without the General Assembly even knowing, actually, that the deals had been cut. So those types of end runs around the legislatures are why legislatures came back and said, this is not going to happen again. North Carolina being a good example of it. But Joe Biden was calling the Georgia law Jim Crow 2.0. Here's what he said, quote, um, the goal of the former president and his allies. Sorry. The goal of the former president and his allies. I can't read the whole thing like that. So he's talking about Trump saying the goal of Trump and his allies is to disenfranchise anyone who votes against them. Simple as that. The facts won't matter. Your vote won't matter. They'll just decide what they want and then do it. Stacey Abrams, who I think is the governor now of, I think, 17 states. I think she's won 17 different gubernatorial races. Anyway, uh, she's the 2018 Democratic candidate for governor who claimed that the election was rigged claimed that she actually won, has never conceded that race. She has refused to accept her loss. She said that the new law was, quote, reviving Georgia's dark past of racist voting laws. John Fund, writing at National Review, says, quote, don't expect Biden or Abrams to revisit their remarks now that three weeks of Georgia's early voting has just ended. Nearly eight 100,000 Georgians have voted early. That is more than three times the number in the 2018 primary, and it's higher even than in the hyper-energized 2020 primary. Now, I just heard Vince Coakley mention the fact that uh, turnout was likely suppressed to some degree by President Trump and and the rhetoric about elections being rigged and they're not fair and all of that. I have no doubt that that plays a role. See, here's the thing, and I have said this for years, whether I talk about election integrity measures that Republicans prefer or that they oppose or Democrats prefer or, well, I mean, I don't know if they actually prefer any election integrity measures, but uh, yeah, the ones that they oppose. Here's the, here, here's the deal. When people have confidence in the system, more people participate. Look at the lottery. Please look at the lottery. 
it offers a way, right? It offers a way forward. The model that lotteries use, there are models that draw from that expertise. You can actually secure the vote. We can do that. You have to have the will to do it. And the fact that politicians don't want to do it and refuse to do it indicates that they're not actually on board with voter integrity. Why? I will let you draw your own conclusions. I will not try to assign motive. Just like I try not to assign motive to people on the roads. But I just kind of go into it thinking they're all trying to kill me. <laughs> That's And it has kept me alive up until this point. That's the Rolling Stones. Newstalk 1110-993-WBT, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. John Fund writing at National Review, talking about Stacey Abrams and President Biden um, and their lies that they told about the Georgia election integrity law and other laws like it around America. And now the turnout in Georgia has laid bare the lie. Sorry, laid bare the lies. (laughs) Many, many, many lies they told. Why? Well, remember the story um, Hal Weatherman told to Chad Adams when Chad was filling in for me one day. He had Hal Weatherman on. And Hal worked for Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, former Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. And they, soon after Roy Cooper won the governor's race and Dan Forrest had won re-election. Um, this was the first term, right? So Cooper's first term. Cooper gets invited to go up to Pennsylvania for some sort of, you know, bicentennial thing or whatever. And it was only the 13 original colonies, governors and lieutenant governors. And they were all invited. And Cooper could not go. Or, yeah, I'm sorry, just the governors were invited. Cooper couldn't go. So he asked Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest to go in his place. And they did. And while they were up there, these other governors, particularly Ed Rendell from Pennsylvania and Terry McAuliffe from Virginia, they thought that Dan Forrest was a Democrat. Because in, like, Virginia, they run as a ticket, right? They're the same team. Not so in North Carolina. And so they're talking about all of these machinations And they were talking about specifically all of the lawsuits that they were stacking up to file and had already begun. But they were stacking up to file lawsuits over redistricting, gerrymandering and election laws and all of this. And the reason why they said, yes, if we maybe we win some of these cases, that's possible. We could win some of the cases. But um, the whole point is to cast the Republicans as racist. And why would you do that? in order to convince the voting bloc that secures Democratic victories every election cycle is to keep African-American voters scared of Republicans, thinking that the Republicans hate them. That's it. That's the point. And they told him this. And then later on, they found out that he's not a Democrat. And they tried to, oh, you know, we were just kidding about that whole, you know, racist Republican thing. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. That's been the plan. That continues to be the plan. And that's why when Joe Biden runs his mouth talking about how, oh, Jim Crow 2.0 and all of this, 
Now that you know that story, you recognize the strategy. It's simply an election strategy. That's it. Cast your opponents as racist. And I mean, okay, fine. So you're doing grave damage to race relations in America, undermining the trust necessary for a civil society. But, you know, there's there's an election to win. So got to break some eggs, make the omelet. Abrams and Biden lied to the people of Georgia and the country for political gain. That is the quote from the Georgia Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. He said, from day one, I said that Georgia's election law balanced security and access, and the facts have proved me right. They have got higher turnout now than they had in 2018. So once the law went on the books, they now have higher turnout. Why? Now, I see some people on the left are making this silly argument that, well, they thought they were coming to take their voting rights away, uh, voting rights away, so that's why everyone's turning out. Yeah, no. People turn out when they believe the system is secure and their votes actually matter. Would you play a lottery if you saw one person kept on winning all the time? No, of course not. The allegations were about the, you know, limiting mail-in ballots limiting the number of hours, taking away drop boxes, um, and, and oh, the long waits at the polling places, all of which have been debunked. Stacey Abrams, who is actually running for governor again, which is weird because I thought she already won, but um, she said, I'm tired of being told that we are the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live, which, just as a sidebar here, that is a uh, that is a unique position statement, don't you think? Right? That's an interesting campaign focus. Vote for me. I think this place stinks. She could win. Hey, look, she won last time around. It could happen again. Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show. Rich Lowry at National Review saying that the surge in the early vote in Georgia shows that all the smears about the state's new voting law repeated by everybody from the president on down were just nonsense. A fevered fantasy, he says, that the credulous and fanatical believed because they didn't know better and the cynical and opportunistic believed because it served their purposes. Now that a tsunami of early voting has shown that, indeed, there's no vote suppression in Georgia, the disinformation scolds are nowhere to be seen. The fact checkers are not swinging into action. The major newspapers are not preparing TikToks on how the president was led down the path of promoting misinformation about the legitimacy of our electoral system. No, no. No Sunday shows doing long segments devoted to the theme of how democracy in Georgia once claimed to be hanging by a thread, has remarkably revived. Praise God and hallelujah. We're not going to get any of that. Brennan Center, uh, whose job it is, he says, to seed the media with left-wing arguments masquerading as neutral analysis, uh, led the charge on much of this. Newsrooms took up the same themes, and then Lowry documents for much of the piece today at nationalreview.com. He documents the long list of liars. I'm not going to get into it here, but it's a long list. The journalistic reaction has been, shall we say, muted. 
You've heard me talk about uh, predictive journalism, speculative journalism, and how it's not really journalism. It's just people making guesses. It's, it's reporters talking to, quote, experts who predict things might happen. Headlines that say something, something could be. It's the equivalent of, it'll be interesting to see. That's what that kind of journalism is. And yes, it would be interesting to see, which is when you would do the story. But predicting that something could happen would just be like predicting something might not happen, right? And the problem with that is that if you are wrong, they never go back and say, oh, you know how I did all of those stories? I did the, you know, 600-word think piece on what might happen. I was wrong. Yeah, it actually didn't turn out to be nearly as bad as I predicted it would be. Nobody ever goes back and says that. Reporters don't. Maybe some columnists might, but reporters don't. They just move on to the next story where they slap a mic upside someone's face and say, hey, what might happen? And that person says, well, this might happen. And then the reporters go, so-and-so says this might happen. It's virtually valueless journalism. But that's what so much of reporting is nowadays. So Lowry's comment here that he's, you know, well, he knows he's not expecting any mea culpas coming from any of these usual suspects. Despite the dire previous coverage, the New York Times did not see fit to mention the false warnings about the Georgia law in its report. Because they have to report on the results today, right? They're reporting on the election, but they're not telling you, oh, remember how when they passed these laws and we told you that this was Jim Crow 2.0 and we quoted all these people? There isn't it. There's no going back to the Democrats who made those dire predictions and holding them to account for stoking racial animus, because that's what they did. There's nobody going back and asking. There's there's no defend or disavow game being played here. Because, well, media, (laughs) They, they choose not to. The AP had a story in Georgia um, headlined as America embraces early voting. GOP hurries to restrict it. But in their story now about what's actually happening, they don't mention all of the prior warnings. Now, to its credit, the Washington Post, they did not memory hold the long freak out about Georgia, which, by the way, Washington Post does every now and again. They, they just take stuff down, don't tell anybody. They stealth edit stuff. So kudos to them for not obliterating the record. But their headline story was voting is surging in Georgia despite controversial new election law. Now, a better headline might have been voting and sur- uh, voting is surging in Georgia despite allegations about new election law. See the difference there or hear the difference? Despite controversial new election law or despite allegations about new election law. So often is the case, the narrative that is pushed by the left is simply repackaged and promoted and amplified by media. And this was another example of it. I've said for years now, elections are about what media make them. And they are. They, they really are. To a large degree, they are. And that's the role the media continues to play for Democrats. I could only imagine, speaking of speculative journalism, I could only imagine the success that Republicans would enjoy if they got some of the kind of coverage 
And it's not even the coverage. It's the ignoring of certain stories or the framing of certain issues. I've got a whole stack of it today. A thread throughout the Post story, the Washington Post, chronicles how Democrat activists have changed their strategies in reaction to the law. That's the focus of the story. But if you can defeat alleged voter suppression with ease by simply registering people and then getting them out to vote in massive numbers, wouldn't that be a good sign that there wasn't any voter suppression to begin with? All elections have rules. Rules are by design suppressive. Every single rule suppresses somebody from being able to do what they want to do. Because if it's outside of the boundaries of that rule, they don't get to do it. That's the very nature of law and rules. Yeah, I would love to get uh, $200 every time I pass not just go, but every time I pass the no parking. Not just land on it, but also pass it. Oh, and also maybe I should uh, be able to confiscate everybody's houses on, on the Monopoly board if I roll doubles. I would like very much for those things to be the case, but they are not. I'm being suppressed. Right? My ability to inflict monopoly harm on my opponents. Sorry, nieces and nephews. But, I mean, look, they got to learn somehow. So, I'm sorry, you know, I'm being suppressed. These, these efforts of mine are, uh, are being suppressed. Yeah, because they're against the rules. The Post report ends with an anecdote. Listen to this. Patsy Reed, 70-year-old African-American retiree, who was surprised that she could vote early and had no issue. And this actually makes me sad. Here's what she says, quote, I had heard that they were going to try to deter us in any way possible because of the fact that we didn't go Republican in the last election when Trump didn't win. To go in there and vote as easily as I did and to be treated with the respect that I knew I deserved as an American citizen, I was really thrown back. That's the voice of somebody who's been lied to. She has been lied to by the party that she supports repeatedly and at great volume. Rich Lowry says, as with the Russian hoax, having promoted the Georgia voting hoax means never having to admit error, let alone apologize. Speaking of the Russia hoax, John Durham uh, dropped another bombshell in court yesterday in the trial of Michael Sussman, which began last week, resumed yesterday. More witnesses being called. Special counsel John Durham continues to build his case against Sussman, who was the lawyer for the Hillary Clinton campaign. I'll tell you what that is all about. Up next... RedState.com. Bonchi. Writing about the trial of Michael Sussman, which again sounds an awful lot like suspect, so I think he's guilty. Sussman is charged with lying to the FBI, something he allegedly did when he hid who he was working for while sharing the now debunked Alpha Bank story. That disinformation campaign, which was meant to falsely assert that Donald Trump was colluding with the Russians during the 2016 election, has now been directly tied to Hillary Clinton during the trial because it was revealed by Robbie Mook, her comms director, campaign manager, rather, uh, that uh, she approved the dissemination of the fake news. That she approved the planting of the story in the media. 
But apparently, Sussman and Hillary Clinton by proxy weren't the only ones lying. According to documents presented by the special counsel in the case, John Durham, uh, the FBI lied about the Alpha Bank smears provenance, where its origin, telling agents it had come from the DOJ. The FBI told its agents that the information came from the DOJ, not Michael Sussman, when it was Sussman who had brought it directly to the FBI. And get this, the leadership of the FBI was aware of its origins as a badly done political opposition research hit piece. They knew that. They already knew that. They didn't tell the agents who they put onto the case, and then they lied to them about where it came from. Now, why would, why would FBI leaders do such a thing? <gasps> we may never know. It appears the FBI purposefully misrepresented the situation by using a false DOJ referral to make it seem as if the Alpha Bank had come from an anonymous third party. But in reality, it came from Hillary Clinton. And the FBI was well aware of who had told them the information, as well as his connections to her campaign. So prosecutors called an FBI agent named Ryan Gaynor to the stand. And he noted that the decision to keep the agents in the dark on the source was made by the highest levels of the FBI. Top men. Who? Specifically. Top men. He also said that he had known Sussman was working, or sorry, had he known Sussman was working for Hillary Clinton, he would have possibly handled the matter differently, including not volunteering to run point in the first place. Well, yeah, I mean, because if you're going to go after Hillary Clinton, like, people end up dead there. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, toe to Bonchi, redstate.com. <clears throat> to summarize, he says... The lower-level agents were, were, ne- uh, were asking to uh, interview Michael Sussman, though they didn't know who he was. They just asked the superiors up the food chain. They said, hey, you gave us this referral. Can we please see um, or can we, can we uh, interview this guy? Can we see this person so we can interview them? And they didn't know who the person was. They wanted more information about his claims. And instead of allowing that to occur... FBI agent Gaynor kept the hold in place because his superiors did not give him all the information on who Sussman was. Had he known Sussman was motivated by politics, it would have changed things, he said. That leads to the obvious question, right? Why did former FBI Director James Comey and the rest of the FBI leadership purposefully obfuscate or hide the source of the Alpha Bank story? Mm. That's a brain buster. I don't know if we'll ever be able to know the answer to that. Why lie about it coming from the DOJ? Pretty simple question. Maybe we'll get somebody on the stand to answer it. I certainly have my suspicions, Bonchi says, and that's putting it lightly. The only reason to do the things that he just mentioned that came out in court yesterday, the only reason is to push a false narrative that otherwise would not hold up under nominal scrutiny. Jim Comey and his lackeys obviously wanted the Alpha Bank story to be true, and they did what they had to do to keep it in the fold. 
in the end, it feels like everybody was in on the scam and nobody is paying a price. Earlier, I mentioned, uh, was the line from the Rich Lowry piece at National Review. As with the Russian hoax, having promoted the Georgia voting hoax means never having to admit error, let alone apologize. And he has this quote from the 70-year-old African-American woman who was convinced that she was going to be prevented from, uh, from voting and that um, she was going to be treated with disrespect when she showed up at the polls. And then when she went and voted, she was amazed at how easy it was and how much respect she was afforded. She said, I was really thrown back. And Rich Lowry said, that's the voice of someone who has been lied to repeatedly and at great volume. Washington Post, Ipsos poll. Three quarters of black Americans are worried that they or somebody they love will be attacked because of their race. Three quarters. Elections are about what media make them. And and, and I don't know, maybe I say these things and I try to tie these things together and make these points in the ways that I do because I still think that there are some news operations that might be salvageable, you know, that can that can sort of wake up and, and see the kind of damage that they're doing to the society because you are. Maybe maybe I'm an optimist because that's what people usually accuse me of being is an optimist. That's that's usually. Yeah. Um, it's because I actually respect the profession. And I want it to be what it should be. And I'm perpetually disappointed. Three quarters of black Americans are worried that they or somebody they love will be attacked because of their race. 70% of black Americans think at least half of white Americans hold white supremacist beliefs. 70%. 70% think half of all white people have white, are, are white supremacists. That is the voice of people who have been lied to repeatedly and at great volume. And you're destroying the fabric of the country. The fabric is trust. You got to have trust. We have to trust each other to live in a society as we do. When the only thing that keeps us bound together is an idea. Right? We are multi-ethnic, multiracial. It's the idea, the promise of what America is, that's, that's the thing that binds us. And if you're going to pit everybody against each other and you're going to give these exaggerated, hyperbolic, and distorted views of reality, you're going to tear the country apart. 75% of black Americans say white supremacists are a, quote, major threat to black Americans. 66% say white supremacy is a bigger problem than it was five years ago. I'm not going to go into the FBI crime data, but needless to say, this is detached from reality. And painting erroneous pictures makes it worse, media. Makes it worse. <laughs>